Bible, stand, turn with me uh, to the book of Acts, the 27th chapter, Acts chapter 27. I'll be reading from verse 35, Acts chapter 27 and verse 35. Isn't it so good to be in the house of God, amen, in the middle of a holiday weekend, amen, that we've found the opportunity and taken the time just to come to fellowship together with the people of God and give Him the praise and glory and honor that He deserves, amen? Acts 27 and 35 says, and when He had thus spoken, He took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and when He had broken it, He began to eat. I want to preach from this thought, a strange place to give thanks. A strange place to give thanks. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for the great and wonderful grace of God that's in this house. And Lord, I'm asking right now in the name of Jesus that over the course of the next few moments, Lord, you would bring our minds into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ, Lord, that in the next few moments your word could speak in our hearts, speak in our lives, Lord. I'm asking, Lord, to encourage somebody, to lift somebody up, Lord, to help us, Lord, step into, Lord, the desire, the thing that you have desired for us in this service today, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Would you say amen? Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. The final two chapters of the book of Acts deal with Paul's journey to Rome as a prisoner. Those two chapters are fascinating and detailed report of a perilous voyage at sea. The account of that voyage is richly detailed in Scripture. I don't have the time to read every single verse of chapter 27 as it tells the story that we're going we're gonna to kind of unfold before you this afternoon. But it is a story that the writing of Luke in this text is very consistent with ancient maritime practices. As a matter of fact, there was a man by the name of James Smith. James Smith was a Scottish yachtsman, and he was a classical biblical scholar. And he took Acts 27, and he began to study it. He spent years studying the text there and that narrative of the voyage that Paul took. And he even sailed the same route himself, sailed it at the same time of year. And he concluded that the details that Luke shares in that account are both accurate and authentic. It is a very interesting look into the maritime practices of uh, that day and age. And while I don't have the time today to go into all of the details, we'll see some of those unfold as we go through the journey that Paul took. Now the journey begins when Festus decides that Paul must be sent to Rome. Paul has claimed his right to appeal his case before Caesar. So Paul, along with a group of other prisoners, is placed under the authority of a centurion named Julius. And together with a cohort of Roman soldiers, they set out on a lengthy journey that will involve passage on two different merchant ships. The first ship was one of the smaller ships that sailed the coast and was commonly used to transport passengers and cargo. That ship had probably sailed down the coast with its cargo, had offloaded its cargo, and was now returning home. 
virtually empty, which allowed it to take on a large group of Roman soldiers and the prisoners that they accompanied. The first portion of their journey was uneventful. They sailed up the Phoenician coast, and you can follow me in the book of Acts, the 27th chapter. They, they sailed up the Phoenician coast to Sidon, and there they rested. They resupplied. Uh, Paul even took the chance because Paul, while he is a prisoner of Rome, he's not like the rest of the prisoners. He's not in bonds, and they allowed Paul to go and visit some friends that he had there in Sidon and had a chance to spend some time in fellowship with, with the people of God before they cast off again on the next phase of their journey. Now, the writer of Acts notes that when they left there, they sailed under Cyprus, which means that they sailed in the lee of Cyprus. That means that they, they put the island, that landmass, between them and the wind. It was a way to help protect them from the wind that was blowing. And then they journeyed north and west along the coast of Silica and Pamphylia. And their destination was a port called Myra. Mira was a major port. It was a place where they could change ships because the next leg of the journey would require a much larger ship. It would be much more treacherous and much more difficult. The journey to Mira took them approximately two weeks. The wind was troublesome, but they managed to make a safe passage to the port of Mira. At Mira, they changed ships. The writer Luke tells us that they found an Alexandrian ship that was sailing to Rome. Alexandria was a city in Egypt, and Rome was a huge importer of Egyptian grains. As a matter of fact, the Roman Empire imported 150,000 tons of Egyptian grain every year. And so there were dozens of these very large commercial ships that made the round-trip journey from Egypt to Rome to transport those massive amounts of grain. And Paul and his fellow travelers were given passage on one of those ships, a large seafaring vessel. By this time, however, the season was getting late. The sailing was becoming difficult. The prevailing winds were from the west and the northwest, and after leaving Myra, the ship was more directly exposed to the wind. They, that, that made sailing towards Rome very difficult to sail directly to Rome from Myra. They needed to sail west, but uh, the biblical account tells us that as they began to sail, it took them many days of slow sailing to make it to Sinaitis. Sinaitis was roughly a two-day journey under favorable conditions, but Luke said it took them many days. At this point, the seasonally bad weather forced them to make an alternative uh, a decision to pursue an alternative sailing route. They, they, instead of heading west towards Rome, they turned south and went to the eastern tip of the island Crete. And there they sailed once again in the lee of the island. They let the island block the wind from them and they began to work their way around the island. That northwest wind that was coming in that was so dangerous at this time of year was blocked from them by the island Crete. And by using that device, they made their way to a port on the coast of Crete called the Fair Havens. It was at the Fair Havens where the pivotal point in the story takes place. 
And to understand what is happening as the story unfolds, you have to understand that sailing on the Mediterranean Sea was a dicey prospect in between the middle of September and the middle of November. But after mid-November, it became nearly impossible to sail the Mediterranean Sea. So ships did not sail at all between mid-November In early February, all shipping traffic was shut down for the winter. The various parties in the sailing expedition have recognized by this point in the journey that they will not make it to Rome this season. The weather is going to shut them down. They're going to have to find a safe harbor. They're going to have to find a place to pull in and spend the winter. They're going to have to winter somewhere. So they were faced with a choice. They were already in the harbor at Fairhaven. And they could hunker down there and they could spend the winter there. Or they could press on to the next port. The next port was the port of Phoenix. And they could winter there. Their concern would have been the fact that the port at Fairhaven was not well protected from the winter winds. And if they spent the winter there, their ship would be battered by those terrible winds that would come in and beat on the ship all winter long. The waves and the winds and the elements would possibly do damage to the ship. But the port in Phoenix was well sheltered. It was protected. It was the better place to spend the winter. So the decision was made. Luke tells us the captain, the vessel, the centurion, and the boat's owner all got together, and they made an executive decision. You know what? We're going to sail to Phoenix. And so the, the route from Fairhavens to Phoenix under good conditions could be made in a single day. You could sail that journey in one hard day of sailing. So they decided one more day. One more day of sailing in bad weather. One more day of sailing against contrary winds. One more day of fighting the elements and then they would be able to settle down for the winter in the safety of Phoenix. But the the, the Acts writer Luke tells us that Paul was adamantly opposed to the idea. As a matter of fact, he warned them that if we sail the ship now, If we sail into the coming storm, if we sail into what lies before us, it's just a one-day journey. But if we undertake this one-day journey, it's going to lead to disaster. It's going to cause loss. Uh, It's going to cause loss of the ship. It's going to cause loss of the cargo. He even warns it could cause loss of life. No doubt there was some turmoil there. There was some struggle there. But Luke tells us that all of a sudden the weather changed. A gentle south wind began to blow. And when that gentle south wind began to blow, the sailors decided that they knew more than Paul did. And they weighed anchor and they began their run to Phoenix. About halfway between Fair Havens and Phoenix, their ship would have rounded the Cape Matala. And when they did, The ship would have left the lee of the island. It would have left that place where they were protected. And they would have been exposed to the prevailing winds that were blowing. That was expected. The sailors knew that was coming. But what happened at that juncture caught everyone on the ship 
by surprise. A wind of hurricane force came sweeping down from the island. It was a wind that was well known to ancient sailors. It had been appropriately named the Eurocladine. Eurocladine. I said that a hundred times before now. I got it right every other time. The Eurocladine. It's a Greek word. Do you know how it translates? It translates into an English phrase that is very familiar to sailors. It means a nor'easter, a northeastern wind, the most dangerous wind known to sailors. And what happened when they rounded that corner, they came out of that cape and they rounded into that place where they were no longer protected from the wind, there, there came a burst of wind that was sudden and destructive. It struck their ship with a fury that they had never imagined. It was beyond anything that they had experienced previously. And when it slammed into the ship, it did it with such force that it immediately blew the ship off course. But what made that wind so destructive and what made that wind so dangerous and the reason why they shut down shipping traffic on the Mediterranean in between mid-November and early February was that wind, once it begins to blow, doesn't let up. It doesn't stop. There isn't any pause. There isn't any rest. And it soon became obvious that reaching Phoenix was going to be impossible. The writer of Acts tells us that they could not head into the wind. They couldn't steer the ship in the direction they wanted to steer it. They, there was no way to adjust the sails to maintain their desired course. So instead, they let her drive. That means they lowered the sails, they, they shortened them up, and they let the wind push them. They put themselves at the mercy of the wind. The wind drove them hard. It drove them fast, and it drove them far off course, and there was nothing that they could do to resist it. Luke tells us that at one point, they found themselves in the lee of a small island with a little bit of material between them and the wind blocking and at that point they began to do everything that they could to make the ship as watertight as they could they began to try to the bible says the writer of luke said uh, the writer of acts says that they undergirded the ship what that means is that they took ropes big massive cable ropes and they passed them underneath the ship and they brought them up on either side of the ship and they attached them to devices that they tightened those ropes and they did that down the length of the ship and what that did with the with the ropes going under and undergirding the ship and then the the device they used to tighten them that that drew the planks of the ship together because already the wind and the waves were beginning to cause the ship to leak and already the the the, the structure of the ship was being called into question Luke puts that little detail in the text and what he does by doing that is lets us know that the captain was afraid they were in dire straits the the captain was the only way that he would employ such measures is if he was afraid that the combination of the wind and the waves was going to break the back of his ship 
He was afraid they were going to come apart in the middle of the storm. Luke goes on to tell us, night and day passed with alarming frequency. They endured the winds. They floundered in the waves twice. They attempted to lighten the load of the ship. First time, they cast off most of their cargo. The second time, they cast off all of the ship's excess tackle. But things just kept getting worse and worse. The storm got so bad that day could not be distinguished from night. The clouds got so thick and the storm got so dense that for many days they saw neither the sun nor the stars. That's a very frightening prospect for men who navigated by the celestial bodies. They, they no longer had any idea where they were. If they, if they couldn't see the stars, they had no frame of reference. They, there was no way to know where they were and no way to know which direction they were going or where they were headed. And the text tells us that at that point, they lost all the situation was critical. The outlook was dismal. The circumstances were hopeless, but it was there. In the middle of that horrible, dreadful storm, in the middle of that hopeless situation, it was there that the angel of God stood beside Paul on the deck of that ship as the winds raged and as the waves beat that trembling vessel. The angel of God stood beside Paul and reassured him that he and all those who sailed with him were sailing under the protection of God, there would be a shipwreck. There would be a disaster. They would be stranded on an island. There, but, but as long as they would stay with the ship, as long as they would stay close to Paul, there would not be any loss of life. And so Paul began to encourage the sailors. He began to tell them, hey, we're going to be all right. We're going to make it through this storm. It's going to be rough. There, what's ahead of us is worse than what's behind us. But if, if we'll just hang on, we're going to make it through to the other side. If, we'll just, if you just keep the faith, uh, God has promised me he's going to take care of us. But his words, though they were filled with hope, must have seemed somewhat hollow as they were swept away by the howling wind. Drowned beneath the sound of the waves crashing over the deck. Then on the 14th night. 14 nights caught in the grip of the storm. Luke said as they were being driven by the storm. On that 14th night. The sailors heard a sound that struck terror in their hearts. They could hear the sound of water breaking on rocks. That sound meant that land was near. But it also meant that one of their greatest fears was on the verge of coming to pass. The ship could be driven into the rocks where the storm would literally grind it into pieces. And in the darkness of the night, on that 14th night, 
There was no way for them to guide the ship. They couldn't see the stars. They didn't know which direction the land was. They had no idea where they were. There was no way to ensure safe passage and a way to beach the ship and miss the rocks. So the sailors did the only thing that they could do. In desperation, Luke tells us, they threw four anchors off the back of the ship to try to hold it back as it raced towards what could be an imminent disaster. And then having done that, the Bible says they wished for daylight. It's the worst storm of their lives. These are sailors. These are men that are familiar with the sea. It's the worst situation they've ever been in. They have done everything they know to do. They, the, the final task, the last resort, they've tossed the anchors off the back of the ship in hope that it will somehow slow them down long enough for the sun to come up and them try to steer their course away from the rocks. And all that was left to do will sit in the darkness and hope. Hope for daylight. And on that dark night, after 14 long days caught in the grip of a terrible storm, with an uncertain future looming before them, Paul did an incredible thing. For 14 days... They had been too scared and perhaps even too seasick to eat. They had been so consumed with the storm that eating was the last thing on their mind. But right there, caught in the grip of the storm of a lifetime, listening to the ever, and, ever louder and ominous sound of the water breaking on the rocks, bowed over by the fierce wind and rolling with the assault of the tremendous waves. The Bible says right there, Paul took some bread and gave thanks. What a strange place to give thanks. What an incredible atmosphere to stop and thank God. I mean, I understand eating in the middle of the storm. I, I don't miss many meals. I, I know that it's an important thing to eat. But if ever there was an occasion where it was okay to grab a quick bite and forego the giving of thanks, surely this was it. But Paul, on what was perhaps the darkest night of his life, in what was perhaps the, the most incredible of circumstances, the worst storm that he had ever seen, took bread and gave thanks to God. It's a very simple thought. But I've come to tell somebody in this place on a Sunday afternoon that you can celebrate Thanksgiving anywhere. That you can give thanks to God under any set of circumstances. I come to tell somebody in this place today that you can lift your hands uh, to the master, uh, to the maker of everything that is, uh, to the one who loved you and redeemed you under any set of circumstances, even in the middle of your storm. 
You can thank him. You can thank him no matter what is going on in your life. If we were honest with each other today, we, we've all been in places like Paul was in. We've all been in that place where it seemed like uh, it was a routine day. Things were going normal. Everything was the way it always has been. And then all of a sudden, that wind struck us a broadside out of nowhere, blew us hundreds of miles off the course. That kind of day where we, we set out with a gentle south wind and, and there was nowhere inside a storm. There was no trouble anywhere around us, but out of nowhere, we were blindsided. Uh, that phone call came. That The doctor said what he said. That, 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 that disaster that we never imagined might happen drives us into the storm, drives away all pretense of peace and security. We've all been where Paul and those sailors were, where that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach makes it so that you cannot eat. You can't even sleep. That nagging, haunting anguish of the soul where it seems like days and nights become so dark and dreadful that they're hard to distinguish one from the other. That terrible terrible circumstance where life becomes one long dark endless storm that feels like it will never let up where it seems as if the whole world is crashing down on you and if we're not careful in those kind of circumstances we'll become just like those sailors that became so consumed with the storm that it destroyed all hope everything was presumed to be lost. 14 days without a decent night's sleep. 14 days without a warm evening meal. 14 days of running on adrenaline, of doing everything that you can, all of your effort just to keep your head above water. You know what I'm talking about. You've been there. You've been where Paul was. 14 days of utter and absolute hopelessness. In that kind of setting, Paul said, I'm going to give God thanks. In that kind of circumstance, uh, Paul said, I'm not going to just take my bread, uh, but I'm going to take the time uh, to give God thanks. I'm going to tell you what I believe on this weekend after Thanksgiving. I believe that there are some of us who have enjoyed our annual day of feasting and fellowship with our friends and our family, but have not really stopped to give God thanks in the middle of our storm. It's difficult sometimes to really deal with what's going on in our lives. So we push it into a corner somewhere. We, we sweep it under a rug somewhere. We, we put a friendly face that hides our hurt and our pain, our anguish behind a smile and a handshake. And we act like everything is all right when our heart is in the 14th night of a terrible, dreadful storm. But I want you to know in this house on a Sunday afternoon, 
You don't have to pretend like it's not storming in your life. You don't have to pretend like everything's okay. He already knows what's going on in your life. Uh, He already knows uh, what you're going through. And I've come to tell you today that you can praise God in the middle of your storm. Uh, I come to tell somebody in this place today, you can give thanks to God uh, in the middle of your storm. Uh, You can lift up your voice uh, and tell him, Lord, I'm going to praise you in spite of everything. I'm going to praise you in the middle of everything. I'm going to give you the praise and glory that you deserve. It transformed that vessel. My Bible tells me that when Paul gave thanks and began to eat, the rest of the soldiers said, you know what? That looks like a good idea to me. I think I'll sit down. And men who hadn't eaten in 14 days, men who hadn't even thought of themselves in 14 days, men who were facing the worst possible circumstances were encouraged Because one man said, you know what? Right here, I'm going to give thanks. Right here, I'm going to lift up the name of God. Right here, I'm going to bless the one that watches over my soul. Come on, somebody. In the middle of the storm, the wind may blow and the seas may rage, but God, God is still on the throne. Amen. In the middle of the storm, the wind may be fierce, but he's still the master of it. The waves may be crashing in, and they may be tossing you to and fro, but he's still your God, and the promise still rings true. I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you, and you're never going to go through one storm alone. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten where you are. You've got a lot today to be thankful for. Come on, there may be some bad things going on in your life, but your blessings still outnumber your tragedies. There may be some terrible things going on, but your good days still outweigh your bad days. Uh, There may be some dark valleys uh, that you're walking through, but the mountaintops still outnumber the valleys. Uh, Amen. If you'd really stop on this Sunday afternoon uh, and consider the goodness of God, uh, you'd find a good reason uh, to lift up your hands uh, and give him thanks uh, in the middle of your storm. I think it's a wonderful testimony that Paul didn't wait until the storm had passed to give thanks to God. There's a tremendous message in the fact that on the eve of their deliverance, while they were still caught in the grasp of the storm, uh, while the shipwreck uh, was still imminent, uh, while the disaster was still looming, uh, while the waves were still crashing on the rocks and the darkness of night still obscured their vision, that's when Paul broke bread and gave thanks to God. Can I talk to you for a minute as your pastor? Some of us make the mistake of thinking that, well, I'll I'll praise him on the other side of the storm. I'll praise him when things get a little better, when I feel like praising him. Let me tell you a secret. 
If you can't thank him in the middle of your storm, then you're not going to thank him on the other side of your storm. If you can't praise him in the middle of your circumstance, if you can't trust him enough to join your voice with that of Paul and say, in everything, I will give thanks. Then when you get on the other side of this storm, you're going to find another trial and another tragedy and another thing that's going to rob you of your joy and rob you of your thanks. If you don't wait, if you wait until you get the perfect circumstance to thank God, I'm here to tell you, you're never going to find the chance to thank him. There's always going to be something to rob you of your joy. The writer Job said, life on this side of glory is always going to be short and full of trouble. You better learn to give God thanks in the middle of your storm. You better learn to lift your hands in adverse circumstances and say, you're still God. You still rule supreme. You're still worthy of my praise. I've sat and watched people backslide because they never learned this simple principle. They never learned that God deserves my praise all the time, in every circumstance, in every situation. I, I haven't met a storm yet that God wasn't worthy of my praise. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul wrote this. He said, in everything, give thanks. In everything, give Thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. In every circumstance, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, uh, in poverty and in provision, uh, in good times and in bad times, uh, in everything, he said, uh, give thanks. Uh, you can thank God today uh, in any circumstance, uh, in any situation, uh, because your circumstance uh, has no bearing uh, on the thankworthiness uh, of God. Uh, he's still worthy of your praise. Uh, he still deserves uh, your thanks. You can thank him under any conditions because under any condition, he's still God and he's still good and he still deserves your thanks. Listen, if he never blesses you again, you could spend the rest of your life thanking him for what he's already done for you. If he never provided for you again, you would still never have a valid reason not to thank him because he's already done far and away more than you could ever thank him for. Our whole lives could be spent in continued thanksgiving for what he's already done for us. He deserves our praise. In everything, Paul said, give thanks. That includes where you are right now. That includes what you're going through right now. In the middle of your storm, in the middle of your circumstance, in the middle of your trial, in the course of your catastrophe, in everything, give thanks. You can thank him tonight, even in the worst of your storms. You can thank him in the deepest valley of your life. You can thank him in the darkest night of your life. You can thank him 
under any circumstances. In everything, give thanks. In everything. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20. Give thanks, giving thanks at all times for all things. Somebody say it with me. For all things. For all things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to God the Father. Give thanks to God for all things. Listen, I'm going to give you a little concept you need to bury in your heart and remember. Not only can you thank God in your storm, you can thank God for your storm. Oh, now, Pastor, you, you done gone off the reservation. You're out in left field now. I can praise him in my storm in spite of the storm, but I don't have to praise him for my storm. My Bible said, praise God in everything. It also said, praise God for everything. That's what the Word says. Praise him for everything. How can I praise him for my storm? How can I praise him for my calamity? How can I praise him for the disaster of my life? How can I in the middle of the worst storm on the 14th night of being caught in the grasp of a terrible storm with the knowledge that the rising sun is going to bring a terrible shipwreck? How can I thank God for the storm? Let me tell you how. In order to thank God for the storm. In order to thank God for everything, you have to believe uh, that he is the God uh, who works all things together for good to those who love him, who serve him, who walk with him. Uh, if you're going to thank him for the storm, uh, then you've got to be able to trust him in the storm. How can you thank God for the valleys? How can you thank God for the terrible trials that burden your soul? You've got to be able to trust Him. You have to be willing to believe that nothing in your life has taken God by surprise. Uh, that the wind that blew you off course, uh, that the wind that broadsided you and shook your world uh, didn't take God uh, by surprise. Uh, he already knew it was coming. Uh, he already knew you'd face this trial. He already knew you are going to walk through this valley. He already knew that you would struggle against this storm and he's already made a way to bring you through it. You have to believe that God knew the storm was coming. You have to believe that God is going to take care of you in the middle of it. That's the kind of mindset that you had to have. The kind of mindset that Paul had when he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks on the deck of a ship that was being tossed by a terrible storm. You have to be willing to trust in the divine providence of God in the middle of your trial. You have to be willing to trust that God knows what he's doing. That he knows where he's taking you. You have to be willing to say, I'm not the master of my own life. I don't determine my own footsteps I don't order my own path and I can trust the one who does Amen. he's God not me so I will give him thanks because I trust him in the middle of my storm I'll thank him for the storm 
Nothing establishes your trust in God like your praise and thankfulness when you don't understand. It's easy to worship Him when you do understand. Nothing establishes your trust in God like thanking Him in the middle of your storm. Abraham's ultimate test was to bring his promise, his child, and lay him on an altar. My Bible tells me that Abraham believed in his heart. Listen, the Bible doesn't say that Abraham believed in his heart that God would spare the child. The Bible says Abraham believed in his heart that God could raise the child from the dead. When Abraham laid Isaac on that altar, Isaac was dead in Abraham's heart. When he drew back that knife, there wasn't even a moment's hesitation or reservation. He wasn't stopping. He was going to do what God told him to do. That's the ultimate sign of trust and faith in God. That was the final test for Abraham. And the angel of God catches his hand and holds back the knife. Because Abraham said, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe in your will. I'm going to believe that the God who gave me the child is able to give the child back to me. I'm going to believe the God that gave me the promise is able to preserve the promise no matter what happens. I want to trust you. I'm going to thank you right in the middle of this storm. When Abraham draws back that knife, what he's doing is he's putting God before everything else in his life. There's nothing in this world that he loves like he loves that little boy. There's nothing in this world that he cherishes like he cherishes that promised child. But he's saying, God, you, you come before everything else. Corey Ten Boom, in the book, The Hiding Place, relates an incident that taught her to always be thankful. She and her sister Betsy had just been transferred to the worst German prison camp they had seen yet. Prison camp by the name of Ravensbrück. On entering the barracks there, they found that they were extremely overcrowded and flea infested. That morning, their scripture reading was from the verse in 1 Thessalonians that I read to you a few moments ago. They started two verses prior. There are three things that Paul commands in that passage. The first is to rejoice always. The second is to pray continually. And the third is to give thanks in all things. And so Betsy told Corey, she said, Corey, now that we've come to this new home, you need to stop and you need to thank God for every detail of this barracks that's going to be our home for the foreseeable future. And Corey told how that she tentatively began to thank God for everything in her new home. She, she began to go into very detailed thanks. Lord, I thank you for the, the blankets. I thank you, Lord, for the old rickety beds. I thank you, Lord, for the overcrowded atmosphere. I think. But when she got to the fleas, she could not find it in herself 
to thank God for the fleece. As a matter of fact, she looked her sister in the eyes and and told Betsy she flatly refused to give thanks to God for the fleece. But Betsy insisted. The Bible says give thanks for everything. And so, Corey, you have to thank God for the fleece. Donna, she said it hurt. But eventually she got to the place where she said, Lord, I want to thank you for the fleece. They spent several long months in that particular camp, and though the conditions were atrocious, one thing about that camp was special. The Nazis never came into the barracks, never broke up their Bible studies and their prayer meetings. They were shocked. They never found such latitude anywhere else. But in that prison camp, the guards pretty much left them alone once they were in their barracks. They had freedom to worship God, freedom to read the Word of God, freedom to have Bible studies, freedom to, to lead other, other inmates in their faith. And it was not until several long months later that they learned that the reason that the guards left them alone in their barracks was because they didn't want to endure the fleece. Thank God for the fleece. I wonder what it is in your life today that you're having a hard time thanking God for. Have you ever stopped to consider your life is in order by chance and random circumstance. The very thing that you struggle to be thankful for has been placed in your life for a reason. God orders your footsteps. I've come on this Sunday afternoon to ask you, why don't you try to lift your hands to heaven and thank God for everything. Thank you, Jesus, for the trial. Thank you, Jesus, for the storm. Thank you, Jesus, even though it's not over yet. Even though I can't see where I'm going. Even though I've been blown off course. Even though I, I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. Even though I, the, the trial hasn't passed yet. Even though I recognize the shipwreck is coming. I give you thanks. They tell me that it is bad form for a preacher to end a sermon by introducing a new text. But for every rule, there has to be an exception, and today's going to be the exception. I'm about to close. I am closing. But I want to close with a passage of Scripture. The 103rd Psalm starts this way. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Forget not all His benefits. D.L. Moody once pointed out 
that the psalmist doesn't say that you have to remember all of the benefits of God. He just says, don't forget them all. Who, who could ever remember all of the benefits of God? Who could ever even begin to list all of the things uh, that you should be thankful for? If you really stop to consider it, uh, you don't even have the time. You don't even have the memory to remember all the things you should thank God for. But that's not the command. The command isn't remember all the goodness of God, remember all the benefits of God. The psalmist didn't tell you you've got to remember them all. He just warned you not to forget them all. Surely you can remember some of them. Surely you can remember some of what God has done. Surely the situation is not so dire. The circumstance is not so dark. The storm is not so terrible that you have forgotten them all. Surely you can remember some of the benefits of God. Would you stand to your feet with me today? It's Thanksgiving weekend. And we spent time with friends and family. We've enjoyed the meals and shared some quality time. We've laughed. We've reminisced. We've enjoyed our holiday. But tomorrow is Monday. And tomorrow life returns to normal. And whatever storm that you were going through is still there. And tomorrow the wind is going to howl. And tomorrow the waves are going to rock your boat. And the shipwreck is going to loom just over the horizon. And here we stand in the middle of the storm. There's nothing that we can do about the circumstances that tomorrow is going to bring us. There's nothing that we can do in the next few moments going to change the hard facts of what we're facing. The only thing that we can do is the one thing that Paul did. In the middle of the storm, we can remember the benefits of God. In the middle of our storm, we can remember the benefits of knowing Him, of serving Him, of walking with Him, we can find in our hearts the kind of confidence in our God that allows us to lift our hands and give Him thanks. Not based on what I can see, because sometimes I can't see anything that is, inspires thanks. But based on what I know, He, He who watches over me, He never sleeps and He never slumbers. And nothing in my life has caught Him by surprise. He knows right where I am. And He knows right what I'm going through. And I come to tell somebody in this place on a Sunday afternoon, it's time to remember the benefits of serving Him.